Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome. My name is Dr. Alessandro Corda. I'm a senior lecturer here in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast, and I'm also the current director of the Institute for Criminology and Criminal Justice. Uh, welcome to this uh, new series uh, uh, of LawPod uh, devoted to uh, ICCJ-related topics. Today we're going to have a conversation with my colleagues, Dr. Rachel Killian, Dr. Etna Dautz, and Professor Anne-Marie Mechalinden on their recently published book uh, titled Sexual Violence and Trial, Local and Comparative Perspectives, recently published by Routledge. So I would first uh, would like to ask my guests today to briefly introduce themselves before we start the discussion. Okay, hi, I'm uh, Dr. Rachel Killeen. I'm one of the editors of the collection and I'm a senior lecturer here in the School of Law. Hi, I'm Dr. Ethna Dowds and I'm another editor of the, the collection and I'm also a senior lecturer in the School of Law. Hi, my name is Anne-Marie McAlinden. I'm a professor of law and criminal justice in the School of Law and I was the third editor on the book with Rachel and Ethna. Thank you very much. So I would like to start asking my guests today about uh, the background of the project. So how did the project materialize? I would like to, to go around and, and, and hear from each of the editors. Yeah, maybe I can start. So to understand the collection, you have to go back to 2018 when there was quite a high profile uh, criminal judgment in Northern Ireland concerning a uh, um, rape allegation against members of the Ulster and Ireland uh, rugby team and some of their friends. So this trial really caused a bit of furore in the country. It attracted a lot of media attention. It really divided public opinion, both people who were outraged by the treatment of the complainant during the trial and then supporters of the accused who felt that the accused were going through a kind of trial by the media. You know, they were always filmed going into the courtroom. The courtroom was packed every day. Um, they did not have anonymity, so there was just a lot of attention. Um, the eventual acquittal then caused its own kind of backlash with the sparking of a movement called the I Believe Her movement and protests in Belfast and other places. And so off the back of that... Uh, review was planned, um, which was to look at how we are going about serious sexual offence trials in Northern Ireland, and that was led by Sir John Gillen. So myself and Ethna and Anne-Marie, we wanted to contribute to the review, so that was open for people to make submissions, but we also wanted to have a conversation amongst ourselves, but also with uh, colleagues and with practitioners about what do sexual offence trials look like in Northern Ireland? What can we learn from other jurisdictions? What kind of troubles are emerging across jurisdictions? And what kind of creative ways might there be for improving the situation uh, for complainants, but also bearing in mind uh, the rights of the accused? So we held the conference in September 2018 and brought together people from around the island of Ireland and across uh, the UK and further afield 
And when that finished, we felt like there was just more to say. Um, so that is where the book kind of initially emerged from. Uh, maybe, Ethna, do you want to maybe say a bit about how we kind of moved from the conference to, to the book, maybe? Yeah, uh, so, yeah, as, as Rachel has just said, it was um, the, you know, the, the rugby rape trial had sparked um, coverage of this particular issue that had actually long been felt within Northern Ireland and other jurisdictions before. And um, also within the conference, um, we, we launched a response to the consultation, just to mention that as well, because we did that as part of the QUB Human Rights Centre and also um, the gender network within the, the School of Law. So we had PhD students as well as, as academics contributing to that. And it covered a range of issues that were noted within the, the review itself. So defendant anonymity, public access to trials, issues of consent, um, issues of legal representation for complainants. And, you know, as Rachel had mentioned, these were issues that then we discussed within the, the context of the conference. And it really became clear, um, we did a, a conference report and it became clear that many of these issues, you know, there was a longer conversation to be had. Um, and also that there was a real richness to the conversations within the conference because it was academic and practitioner based. So we then really, you know, Rachel was the, the driving force behind motivating this and thinking that having a edited collection that brought all these conversations together and also um, brought in additional voices. So maybe, you know, for a conference, you can't always get everyone to attend. Um, so we were able to reach out to various other individuals to also contribute to the, the edited collection. And within that context, we wanted to really bring together that practitioner and academic voices, and also the comparative um, and local perspectives. So maybe Amory might be able to say a little bit more on how we expanded out that reach um, by centering Northern Ireland, but also wanting to, to have a broader reach. Yeah, so let me just pick up on that, Ethna, and, and say, first of all, I think one of the things we wanted to do as well was to try and tap into the more national and global debates around what was happening on sexual violence. So even though the book was situated, as, as Rachel has outlined helpfully there, in the context of the rugby rape trial and the Gillen Review in Northern Ireland, we also wanted to tap into sort of wider scholarship and debates elsewhere. So, for example, this sort of, you know, age-old tension between victims and perpetrators perpetrators or alleged victims and perpetrators of sexual crime, how does the legal system give balance to that? Added to that as well, the impact of not only the law and legal and policy frameworks, but also, for example, you know, the cultural scaffolding and myths around sexual violence, how do public attitudes impact on the trial process and investigation? And I think a third one for us was not only the impact of recent legal and policy reforms elsewhere, but crucially the impact of the digital age in terms of not only new forms of sexual violence that were occurring, but also then how that manifests within the investigation, prosecution and trial processes in terms, for example, of how courts or police deal with digital forms of evidence. 
So as, as Esna mentioned there towards the end, we wanted to do then was to examine those broader theoretical practical debates within not only local contexts but also wider national and comparative perspectives. So from those who were at the conference, we had a range of people and speakers, both academics and practitioners across Northern Ireland, Scotland, England, Wales, even people from Scandinavian countries. And we went back to those then contributors and widened that as well for the scope of the book to try and give strength and to reflect not only sort of the nexus and the nucleus of what was happening in Northern Ireland, but to situate, as I said, in debates and praxis of what was going on elsewhere in the world. Brilliant. Uh, thank you so much. I think that uh, this is a very important project, precisely among other reasons for what you just pointed out, uh, that the project is addressed from, uh, we might say, a global perspective. And, and this is a very important part of what we do at Queen's. Uh, I think that it's very important that there is a focus on the Northern Irish context, but then we take it from here and we expand uh, our view and our analysis. Uh, uh, but again, it's very, very important to draw attention on what is an under-investigated uh, uh, context. I would like here to recall the edited volume that Anne-Marie uh, edited with, with our colleague Claire Dwyer back in 2015, Criminal Justice in Transition, the Northern Ireland Context, which is really another very important contribution to really uh, highlight how it's important to study the Northern Irish case uh, and then expand and, and compare and contrast what's going on in this jurisdiction. And I think that this edited collection really adds to this uh, uh, scholarship. Uh, on the one hand, highlighted the importance, the relevance uh, of the debates uh, in this uh, important, peculiar, under-investigated jurisdiction, but at the same time, not limiting the inquiry to local issues, but also really try to put uh, the local situation in conversation with what's going on in other jurisdictions and other parts of the world. So to pick up uh, on this, I would like to ask you, uh, as a result of this uh, analysis, uh, would you say that there are some uh, specificities uh, to the Northern Irish uh, case in terms of uh, uh, sex uh, offenses, trials, uh, cultural issues, uh, uh, or procedural procedural dynamics. Uh, so I would like to basically tap on the comparative element of the inquiry to see whether you think there are some, some specificities to the Northern Irish case. Yeah, I mean, certainly this came through strongly and has come through uh, strongly. And as you mentioned, Anne-Marie and Claire Dwyer's previous work and Ethna's broader work on consent in Northern Ireland, there's... There's a number of intersecting issues that make our context uh, specific, even though in many ways we mirror the England and Wales uh, criminal justice system. So maybe I can just um, highlight a couple and then and then pass pass on. I suppose one of the key things that comes through when you look at the Northern Irish context is the particular um, socio-cultural situation that that we're in. So. We still have quite a strong kind of conservative Christian culture, um, even as increasingly folks are maybe moving away from religion, it continues to have a strong hold on conversations around sexuality, around sex, um, around consent, uh, you know, and around those kinds of aspects of life. Um, you know, we don't really have a systematic approach to sexual education, for example, 
in our schools. Um, and this contributes to stigma around these topics and that has knock-on effects for uh, you know, people's ability to seek help. Uh, it has knock-on effects for uh, the experience of the criminal justice system and the perceptions of people who experience sexual violence. So it plays through in expected and unexpected ways and continues to be quite a prevalent force in our context. Ethna, um, what would you add to that? Yeah, I think, um, Rachel, you, you've highlighted some of the, the key issues so that, you know, the the social and cultural issues around our, our understandings um, and that conservatism really does um, go through in terms of, you know, how people, um, first of all, speak out about this type of violence and then the, the responses and then bringing it potentially more institutionalized. So if we think about the different bodies who, who do respond to this type of violence, we have a society where relations um, with the police, for example, are still fractured in some areas. So this obviously creates challenges um, for the police in trying to respond to this and also for individuals um, around the extent to which they feel willing to, to, to go to the place and this does stem from the, the conflict in Northern Ireland and the, the, the militarised role played by the police then and the fact that there was a focus maybe on some troubled related um, conduct um, within the policing structure and now you know ordinary crimes there was difficulty in terms of responding to that, and particularly, you know, in um, Anne-Marie and, and Claire's book, they talk about this parallel policing that occurred, so the emergence of paramilitaries. Um, and even though we can talk about those sort of instances as being things of the past, they really still do resonate today, and there still are legacies from that. And in some societies, there is still paramilitary presence. So all of these issues mean that responding to sexual violence within Northern Ireland is complex. Um, it means that there, you know, things that work in other jurisdictions might not necessarily work here. Um, we also have, you know, particular legislation that means that it is a criminal offence um, if someone fails to disclose information relating to a crime. So this makes it difficult for support services, for example, um, where individuals are disclosing instances to them. Um, and, you know, that, that confidentiality and a little bit of a tap dance around what is actually being said and, and maintaining that, that confidentiality and that, and that safe space. So I think that there are a number of issues that make Northern Ireland unique. But what was also interesting from the conference and from the book is that there is still many, many parallels with other jurisdictions. Um, so I think that what we try to do within the book is, you know, tease out the issues in Northern Ireland, but also acknowledge that these issues are felt elsewhere and it's just getting that balance between figuring out what works in other jurisdictions and what lessons can be learned between jurisdictions. So maybe Amory might be able to, to pick up on that. 
Well, well, those are two full comprehensive responses, so I'll maybe just add a little bit to that. I absolutely agree. I think the two key issues of why Northern Ireland is unique, absolutely right, is the legacy of the conflict, which has shaped and continues to impact on our criminal justice system and the institutions of criminal justice. And I think the second one that has been highlighted, the sort of sense of conservative sexual morality and the sex and shame that exists around sexual behaviour is absolutely key. And you can see that right through all forms of sexual offending, you know, including peer abuse, my other work on peer abuse and adult forms of offending. And that is crucial if you think, you know, it's society that are making up juries. So there's a real need to address some of these myths. Yes, the myths are prevalent elsewhere, but I think they're particularly acute in Northern Ireland because of that sort of religious overtones. It's sex and sexuality are not something that are talked about in an open forum. But if I could maybe end on a, a more positive note, I think what Northern Ireland the criminal justice system has as a strength is like unlike England Wales where you have over 40 different police forces you have one police service one probation service one prison service one social work um, sector so really that should make reforms and joined up working that bit easier so I think that's a positive in our jurisdiction that we can build on and draw on. Thank you so much. This is really, really interesting. I would like to focus now on a more general, general topic. So you are all widely published authors. You are true experts uh, on, on these topics. I would like to ask you whether you think that writing about sexual offenses and sexual violence uh, uh, in, in the current climate uh, uh, has become more challenging or do you think that there are most, more spaces even and including at the scholarly level to, to reflect on, this, on these issues because uh, it's, it's uh, apparent that uh, in recent years, uh, as you mentioned, you know, the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement uh, has brought uh, certain issues under the spotlight uh, at the policy and scholarly level, uh, perhaps more than they used to be even just uh, uh, 10 uh, years ago. So uh, I would like to hear from you about the uh, potential, but also uh, challenges, or even I would say the, the changing dynamics or the changing environment uh, when it comes to addressing at the policy and scholarly level uh, the topics of sexual offenses and sexual violence. I mean, I'd love to hear from Anne-Marie on that first, potentially, as, as the more experienced academic amongst us. Have you noticed a change over time, Anne-Marie? Not really as such, Rachel. I suppose maybe, well, maybe one actual change is it, it's much more on the sort of policy and academic agenda now. If you think back to the sort of 1970s when, or 80s when feminist scholarship on rape was just coming in around family violence and gendered uh, and sexualised violence, there's a lot more people writing in this area now. It's, it's a big topic among academics and, and policymakers, I suppose. I think maybe, you know, I think it's fair to say that it's it's a very much an area that it's not possible to do without engaging with practice. I mean, academics used to be accused of working in ivory tower. Certainly, in this book, we tried to get away from that, particularly by inviting practitioners to the conference and by you know inviting practitioners to contribute chapters to the book. Policy is always important for research, but particularly in this area, we can't talk about what's happening in the system without engaging those who are working at the front of the system. I think maybe one of the challenges I've talked about this before in different podcasts and fora is you know it, it's it's an emotive area it's it's not 
possible to write in this area without letting some of it impact you. And I mean, even going beyond sort of rape and sexualized violence into other forms of gendered and sexualized violence, like historical institutional abuse, which is which is a very big issue at the moment. Some of the, of the research is very very harrowing, and I think as a scholar, yes, it, it, it is the, working at the forefront of policy and practice, and another impactful work I've done. I, you know, we all have experiences of that. But it's important to protect yourself as well in terms of, of some of the harsh realities of this. And I, I think, uh, you know, one of the difficulties for scholars is, is trying to get that balance. You want to be professional and sensitised enough that you're writing in a, a neutral tone and not in an emotive way. But at the same time, if you're working with survivors and those on the front line, then you have to have that empathy in terms of working with people. I know this is real people's lives and, and, and really have some harrowing stories. So it's about trying to get that balance, if you like, and being sensitive in your scholarship and, and working with those who, who are who, who've, those for whom this is a daily reality, I suppose. Yeah, I think one other thing I've noticed from being someone that's not from Northern Ireland and then moving to Northern Ireland is something that Esna flagged around the sensitivity to... Um, things that might work elsewhere that are more sensitive here. So if, for example, you're not particularly invested in criminal justice as a, as a response to sexual violence, um, the way that you write about that and talk about that in Northern Ireland has to be sensitive to the reality of paramilitary presence. You know, so, for example, conversations around restorative justice have an additional sensitivity in that people are uh, wary of things that potentially move into a community without uh, cognizance of the community power dynamics. So I don't think that's, I, I mean, it's changing over time because obviously we get further away from the conflict and community dynamics and relationships to the state and NGOs and amongst NGOs change, but there's also a kind of contextual element to that. So although it's shape-shifting, I don't think it's becoming harder or easier, it's just, it's just different. Um, so I think that's one thing that I've noticed in my own work in trying to look beyond criminal justice responses. But I think also just to talk about the global um, phrasing that you used, Alessandro, is I see shift there as well. You know, after the BLM movement took off, there was an abolitionist book club set up in Northern Ireland. I don't think there was necessarily a lot of abolitionist talk in feminist spaces before. Uh, so there's shifting, there's the sensitivities of the context, but there's also this um, awareness of what's happening at a more global level and that, that all feeds in and, and mutually reinforces and changes as well. So there's shifting sands in that regard too. Yeah, well, I, I think um, I would just add, and I suppose it's picking up on, on what both Rachel and, and Amory have said, is that this is an area where you're constantly aware of the, the sensitivities involved and the consequences of your writing um, for those who are reading it and also potentially the, the different things that you're, you're recommending. Um, and from my perspective, because I suppose I went from a place where my writing was a little bit more theoretical to now trying to get more into that practical-based writing, thinking about law reform, thinking about changes, um, and also engaging with practitioners as well and something within that territory then is that as it is an emotive area and it's an area that 
there are a lot of challenges um, and there's a lot of criticism to be levied at you know different institutions or different handlings. Um, but we're all really working towards the same aim. You know, as scholars who are invested in this area, as practitioners who are working in the area, we all want to make it a better space. And there are question marks over whether, you know, as Rachel has just flagged, you know, are there alternative venues? Because I work particularly within the, the criminal regime, but there are a lot of valid um, alternative options that we can look at. But I think what, from my perspective, what I've been quite aware of recently is wanting to ensure that you keep practitioners on board in terms of what you're doing. So when you're writing um, and whenever you're advancing a critique, you do it in a constructive way um, and a way that actually, you know, people recognize and that you offer recommendations um, that, as I said, at, it, at its essence, ensures that we're all working towards the same goal. So that's an aspect that I have been thinking about a lot recently because um, as Anne-Marie just said, it's policy-orientated work. It's work that you want to see the different areas that you're researching and you're thinking about. And if, um, you know, if we see things happen in other jurisdictions that we think could happen here, we want to present that in a way that people acknowledge it and people take it on board um, and support the, you know, the type of research that you're doing. So it's being able to, to critique in a way that, um, you know, other people respond to and that you don't isolate um, the practitioners um, in doing so. Thank you very, very much. Uh, uh, I would like to ask you now about the uh, role of uh, the criminal law, either procedural or substantive, in this particular area. So uh, as you pointed out, we're dealing with very sensitive uh, issues. We're dealing with uh, behaviors that uh, deeply affect uh, people's lives. Uh, do you think that the law and the criminal law uh, in particular should be deployed to foster social change or that other means should be deployed first uh, uh, before we address the matter from a law reform standpoint? Because here we are really going to, to touch on, on very, very crucial aspects uh, and, and, and social dynamics and, and interactions. So here I would like to ask you briefly to uh, share your thoughts about this, I would say, transformative role of the law, especially as applied to uh, the uh, sexual violence, sexual offenses field, especially in the current climate uh, uh, of reform and, and ongoing conversations. Yeah, I think, so this is something I go backwards and forwards on because the law is obviously uh, expressive um, platform for sharing what a society thinks is acceptable and unacceptable. Um, so criminalizing something is a clear indicator that that behavior is not acceptable and that can be important. On the other hand, the criminal justice system is a source of significant violence, uh, violence against people who are accused of crimes, but also violence against people who experience crimes. So we have to be cognizant of that reality in the way that we engage uh, with the legal system and when we push for law reform. So I think it's, it's difficult. Um, we have a criminal justice system, so as long as that is the way that we respond to violence, 
you want to be engaging with it and trying to make it better than it has been. And that's, I think, a, an important goal and a thing that all three of us engage in. But what I, what I try to do, and I've done this more in relation to domestic abuse, is to situate it within a broader context and think, well, ultimately what you want is for violence not to be happening to people. And the criminal justice system is not very good at preventing harm from happening to people. And as I said, often just inflicts harm itself. So what else would keep people safe? So whether that's addressing, you know, socioeconomic inequalities that put people under stress and, and into desperate states of mind, whether that's through education, which addresses the underlying um, themes that cause violence. So in our context, um, misogyny and patriarchy and sexual entitlement, these things start, start young. So by the time you get a criminal justice intervention, it's, it's, it's far too late. Uh, you know, whether that's creating greater safety for, for victims to leave abusive situations or to, to seek help. These things are arguably more impactful, but that doesn't mean that criminal justice has, has no role to play. So I think there's ways of holding on to a belief that a better and fairer system is possible, but that in the here and now, this is what we have. So how can we at least engage with that in good faith to try and minimize the harm and seek, seek more accountability and, and justice? So... That's a bit of a wishy-washy answer, but that's just uh, the reality of something that's quite complex. Ethna, you and I have discussed this in the past. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think you've, you've described my feelings as, you know, my feelings are the same as you, really, in the sense that it's, we have a criminal justice system that exists, and I do, I see the value of, you know, the criminal law and setting standards of appropriate behaviour to, to help guide society and and for individuals who have been violated or victimised to have that recognised on a legal footing. I think there is something of value there. Um, but as, as Rachel has described, the, the criminal justice system itself, um, you know, is a system that doesn't work for many people. Um, and also in the context of rape and sexual violence, it it really isn't working. Um, you know, we can see that from the the statistics in terms of conviction rates and so on. You know, we can have in Northern Ireland, you you have, you know, 800 to 1,000 um, sexual offence is reported in a year, for example, but the conviction rates might only be, you might only get 10 convictions a year between 10 and 20. So it's a very low number that actually makes its way through. So we do have to think more creatively about alternative means of justice and I suppose in my work I'm constantly in this tension because over the past while I've been looking very much at you know rape law reform and reform to consent so by looking at that and by recommending reforms there's an assumption in my work then that I think the criminal law is working or that it can work better um, but I think in the context of, you know, Me Too and, and Time's Up and this um, investment in trying to find different ways to respond to sexual violence, there has almost been an over-investment or an over-expectation of what the law can do. Um, and just to bring it back to some research that I, I did um, a couple of years ago, which was interviews with... Um, professional workers in Northern Ireland, um, you know, police, prosecution, victim support organisations, I was talking to them about 
the law and whether it should be changed and what that might look like. Um, and one thing that came up as well was that, you know, actually there's an assumption that, you know, if we're going to try to tap into the educational value of the law, there's an assumption that wider society know what the law is, which many people don't know. If you ask someone, what is the legal definition of rape? What is the legal definition of consent? It's not widely known. So if you want to change the, that definition to try to educate people on it, then there needs to be additional work in actually raising awareness around that. So I think that that's something definitely to you know have a think about. And also the question over when you push for different reforms, the, the speed at which you do that and the extent to which the way you're changing the law reflects wider societal values. Um, is there a dissonance between them? Does that then mean that the law on paper will not be applied in practice? So there's a, a lot of complexities around when we should change the law, what is our motivation for doing it, and whether that motivation will actually be fulfilled. And, you know, as Rachel said, there's I think there's a lot of other routes, and there's a, um, especially with regards to sexual violence, there's a big piece of educational work that the law can't really do. Um, you know, we shouldn't just always go to the law to fix these deep-rooted social problems. There needs to be broader issues, um, and it needs to come from society itself. I would agree with all of that. I mean, absolutely, first and foremost, I think the law has a very important symbolic and expressive function. We agree with that, particularly when it comes to forms of sexual violence against both women and men. Absolutely, that, that has to be in place. And, you know, if you think of new forms of developing uh, types of, of sexual violence using digital technology like revenge, pornography, the upskirting, which are technically non-contact forms of harm, there's a very important message to be sent there which says that this is equally or can be as equally harmful for some victims um, as opposed to others, you know, equally with, with the contact forms such as sexual violence or rape. I think that said, I think I would always go for a diversionary approach first. I'm a big advocate of restorative justice. I think if we had more diversionary programmes, more education programmes in school, there would be less resort to criminal justice. And I think then equally that might solve some of the key systemic issues around delay. Northern Ireland is one of the worst in the UK for delay. It can be two, two years, 18 months, certainly up to two years or more by the time a case gets from investigation or report to trial. I think the law is both Ethna and Rachel has said is very limited, certainly with some of the biggest challenges we're facing now in this area of gendered and sexualized violence that we mentioned at the start, things like public attitudes around rape and consent, things like the challenges of you know, responding to sexual violence in the digital age. The law can't do that. It's very much playing, you know, catch up when it comes to the digital age. It's reactive, new, takes a while for new legislation to come out. So I think to address those types of systemic issues, which are key and have come out as sort of the background and, and really core issues of our tensions within the criminal justice system at the minute. Certainly, if you look at recent documentaries on television, these are the key issues as well around you know, public attitudes, how that features in an investigation and prosecution, how we deal with digital evidence. The law, the law is, is, is playing catch-up, as I've said. It's reacting to that. We really need a public health approach here, a really first level or first tier as opposed to tertiary response. And I think the answer to that has to be a mass public education education campaign. It's been done with domestic violence. It's been done with child abuse. I think we need we need to do this and invest in this. And I think in particular, 
tackling, if I had to sum it up as one issue, I think tackling the public attitudes and myths and stereotypes would go a long way to, to prevention and also then trying to impact on, on the attitudes of those who are investigating and prosecuting or deciding cases on juries. Thank you very much. These are exceptionally insightful and interesting answers. And I think that this is very well reflected in the contents of the book, which does not only touches on the criminal justice process in its different aspects, but also on the social and cultural dimension. So I, I, I think that this is really a very important publication. And I, I, I do believe it's, it's very important for our uh, audience to, to understand that lawyers constantly uh, focus on the law, but not just on that, on the wider implications and what comes before and after. So it's not really a, a dry subject matter, but we really try to uh, put passion and, 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 and a very open and broad uh, uh, understanding of the issues. But eventually, we have to get back uh, uh, to the law, hopefully, and hoping that the law reflects this, this uh, broader changes and adopts uh, uh, you know, best practices as developed elsewhere. So my final question for you would be, uh, we mentioned many things law reform-wise. Uh, we've uh, touched on uh, uh, evidence uh, aspects. We've touched on the notion and the definition of uh, consent. We have talked about support for, for victims. Uh, uh, we've talked about uh, conviction rates being uh, very low for uh, charges of rape compared as compared to other uh, offenses. If you had to choose one reform, something that you think uh, is the absolute priority when it comes to either procedural, uh, evidentiary, or substantive law in those issues, what uh, if you were the legislature? What, what, what would you would you pass first? What do you think is this the most pressing uh, issue to be fixed uh, when it comes to uh, the law? Um, there is the debate about rape shield legislation. Uh, uh, again, Ethna, the expert here, the definition of, of consent in the books. Uh, I mentioned uh, victim support, victim protection. Uh, I would like to go around uh, for one last time and, and hear what would be the one thing, again, either procedural or substantive, that, that you think is, is uh, most important uh, to, to, to change and introduce in, in our legislation. I mean, it's hard to choose something that's the most important because all of these things are so interconnected. But as someone that often focuses on procedure um, rather than substantive law, I suppose I would um, think more creatively about how we support complainants in sexual offence trials through the process. Uh, so in the edited collection, my own contribution was uh, engaging with the prospect of introducing uh, legal representation for complainants because we have a range of special measures that can be provided for complainants in sexual offence trials but the evidence suggests that this does not do too much to protect them and in particular some of the greatest uh, traumas experienced through the process of being a complainant in a sexual offence trial are a result of intrusive questioning during uh, cross-examination and the introduction of previous sexual history evidence whether appropriately or sometimes sneakily. Uh, so my argument was that uh, 
within limited parameters that respect the rights of the accused, legal representation for complainants could be a useful tool in meaning that there is someone in the courtroom specifically looking out for the complainant's interest. Because currently this is not the case. We have a judge who's trying to balance you know, many different things going on in the courtroom and also needs to be aware of the risk of appeals if she is not cognizant of the rights of the accused in particular. We have a prosecution, but the prosecution work in the public interest, not in the interest of the complainants, and they might not necessarily feel the need to intervene uh, during you know, intrusive cross-examination because they might think that this creates sympathy for the witness. Uh, and then we have the defense. You know, and in the rugby rape trial, there were four defense teams. And this was really an uh, extremely intense experience for, for the complainant to be bombarded with questions from, from so many defense teams. So I think there's scope for it. It's not uh, novel. It happens in other jurisdictions, not necessarily in an adversarial trial in the way that we're used to it. But for example, an, in the international criminal system, there are courts where they have brought together inquisitorial and adversarial methods to introduce this, this representation. Um, I think you know initial studies, even in offering representation up until the trial, suggest that this is really appreciated because complainants are also not necessarily uh, aware of how these things go. You know, they can find the whole thing extremely disorienting and having a contact point is extremely valuable. And having just someone that's there saying, I'm here to look after your interests, I think that would really be a game changer. So that, that would be my suggestion. Yeah, this is a, a hard question, <laughs> Alessandro. Um, I think there there's so many issues um, that require, you know, analysis and that, that require change because even within the Gillen Review, it was noted that, you know, a lot of the recommendations were described as building blocks. So one on its own isn't going to, to make dramatic change, but they would be needed together. Um, and I suppose my research has focused a lot on, on consent and reform to consent. Um, and I'm still exploring that issue and there were recommendations, legislative um, recommendations made in the Gillen Review and I think that they would be good and I think that you know one in particular I've been looking at recently is the extent to which the attention should be paid to whether the defendant took any steps or the failure of the defendant to take steps to ascertain whether the complainant consented and I think it could do a good job of um, shifting attention to the actions of the defendants rather than what has normally been a disproportionate focus on actions or inactions of the complainant. But even within that context, although I, I think there is merit in that recommendation and I would like to explore it further and I have planned research that will explore it further, if that were to be implemented, if the, the change was to be made, we wouldn't actually see the benefit of it for a long time because obviously that new definition, you know, you, you couldn't retrospectively um, apply it, for example. So it might take a bit of time. So I actually think, you know, what Rachel discussed in terms of legal representation, although it's not, you know, my area, and I obviously don't know as anywhere near as much about it as, as what Rachel has been able to describe there, but at its essence, we have an issue with a criminal justice system that the victim feels as an outsider and that within the context you know the complainant is seen as a witness um, so I think that to be able to have 
some sort of representation, some sort of support, um, even just to make, you know, as I said earlier, not everyone, as lawyers, we engage with the law and even to us, it's a complex area. So for individuals who have never engaged with this area, who then go through a significant violation and have to come up against this system, to have someone there that they're able to turn to and to ask questions would make a massive difference to their overall experience. So I think, yeah, even though my work concentrates on consent and legislative change, I think that actually doing something to um, make the experience for complainants better, if we can say that, you know, it can be a better experience, that would be the way to go. Well, I think for me, I would agree with Rachel. I think the, the biggest one probably is legal representation for complainants for all the reasons that Rachel has helpfully outlined. So I, I'll give another one since Rachel has already covered that. I think a second big one for me would be the need to have juryless trials. Now that has been rejected, but I think about, you know, because of the big impact of public attitudes and, and the real very real and substantive myths that, that are, exist around rape and sexual violence, I think it would be much better until we can meaningfully and purposefully address the myths around sexual violence in society. I think it would be much better to take juries out of the equation and have the, the, the case tried by professional judges. That said, I think for that to work, there's a very real need for training for the judiciary and for all legal professionals and police around the impact of trauma around sexual violence that you know not every victim puts up a fight and says no some some people freeze uh, equally linked to that you know the impact of research other research I've done around grooming the fact that some victims don't actually realize that they have been victimized or groomed uh, in relation to other research I've done for example on uh, peer abuse or rape among children and young people there are young people who have been raped on their first night out with someone and then go on to have a relationship and it's only later when talking to their friends they realize that actually isn't right i was a victim of sexual violence so it's it's trying to impact all of this on those who are at the front line of investigation and prosecution in terms of there's no one right way that victims of sexual violence should behave and present that it's very complex and i think until you can you know deal with those complexities around the public attitudes and even around the attitudes as i say of those investigating and prosecuting around the dynamics of sexual violence and how that can have lifelong psychological impacts on victims i think we need to tackle some of those systemic issues in addition to the more substantive procedural reforms at the end of our conversation today this has been an exceptionally fascinating important and engaging uh, discussion i really would like to thank once again our guest today uh, dr rachel killian uh, dr etna Douds, and professor anne-marie McElinden. The book, once again, is Sexual Violence on Trial, Local and Comparative Perspectives, published by Routledge. Thank you so much for joining us for this first episode of the ICCJ Low Pod series, and stay tuned for more.